0: Before we start the show, we want to remind everyone about our ongoing sonification competition. Sonification of astronomical data doesn't actually have to be hard. So to prove it, we wrote an Astrobyte post this past week explaining how we created our sonifications for episode 33 and how you can create your own in 30 minutes or less using the same software.
1: Do participants get a free pizza if it takes longer than 30 minutes? (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, but if you submit
2: one of the winning sonifications, we'll mail you a tall glass of warm milk.
0: Uh, Alex, I think you mean a sweater.
2: Uh, okay, sorry. A tall glass of warm sweater.
1: <laughs> Read all the rules at astrosoundbites.com slash sonification dash competition dash 2021.
0: Every day, the graduate student writers of Astrobites.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy then we sit down with recent astrobites of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system.
2: I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I study transients and their host galaxies.
1: And I'm Melina Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, and I study the dynamics of planetary systems.
0: You're listening to episode 38, Keep Your Head in the Clouds. (laughs) Astronomers can often use the term cloud liberally. We might talk about molecular clouds, ionized clouds of hydrogen or other gases, interstellar gas clouds. But today we're actually going to be talking about the clouds you all know and love, atmospheric clouds.
1: Woo. <laughs> I don't know if we love them. We are astronomers.
2: <laughs> Maybe this is the wrong time, but did you two know I'm a member of the Cloud Appreciation Society?
1: No way. <laughs> it's an
2: international organization. Wow. I get a semi-monthly newsletter.
1: I was just observing last night, and we had a lot of clouds, and I'm part of the cloud anti-appreciation society.
0: (laughs) Before we set sail among the clouds in our astrovites, we should talk about some preliminary matters. We're going to start off with the hard-hitting questions. Milena, what is a cloud?
1: (laughs) So this is actually maybe a more subtle question than you might think. Um, So I tried to be as precise here as I could be. A cloud is a visible, suspended vapor. More specifically, it's a type of condensed aerosol where droplets or frozen crystals are suspended in a gas. So on Earth, clouds by definition are usually made of water, and a lot of definitions that you'll find out there will actually use the term water vapor within them. But clouds, more generally on other planets, can also be made of other compositions. And we also often use this term haze that is often used like almost sort of interchangeably with clouds, but they're actually quite different. So the term haze comes up as well a lot in planetary sciences. Hazes occur, for example, in the atmospheres of Venus and Titan, uh, which is one of Saturn's moons. And they're a similar idea, but they are solid aerosols. So they're still suspended in the atmosphere and they're produced by chemical reactions between the atmosphere and incident radiation. So in the solar system, that might mean, for example, photons from the sun. So they don't evaporate. They don't condense in the same way that clouds do. And the particles tend to be smaller than cloud particles. So they're not always visible. I see. So That's a pretty subtle distinction. Mm. Uh, It's kind of a similar idea, but clouds and hazes are actually two very distinct things, and you can have both of them in any sort of planet or moon atmosphere.
0: You mentioned that clouds don't have to be made of water vapor or even vapor, and that rings a bell because I study the atmosphere of Uranus, and Uranus and Neptune are called the ice giants because they have ice clouds. Mm -hmm. So the clouds are actually made of little tiny ice grains. But Milena, you started to answer my next question, which is, How do clouds form? And it seems like that's what separates a cloud from haze.
2: Right. So gas in different atmospheres has a saturation level for different elements and molecules. So those elements and molecules, those particles, can evaporate and become embedded, suspended in this gas. And up to the saturation level, you're not going to see them. But if the pressure or the temperature of the atmosphere changes, even in a localized region the saturation level can very quickly decrease. And when that happens, it can't hold as much of that element or that molecule in the gas form that it used to be able to. So when that happens, molecules condense out of the atmosphere onto particles like dust in the air. And when that happens at large scales, what we observe is the formation of a
0: cloud. Okay, so the temperature has to drop below a certain critical point then. Or the pressure. But those two are closely related. Mm -hmm. Got it. Does that make clouds pretty common, generally speaking, or would we call them a rare occurrence?
2: From what we've observed from different planets in the solar system, Will, you probably know more about this than I do, but it seems like clouds and precipitation are extremely common, but the composition of those clouds can vary wildly based on the different properties and specifically the temperature of that body. So, for example... It rains sulfuric acid on Venus. It rains carbon dioxide on Mars and helium on Jupiter, and even methane and ammonia on Titan, Saturn's moon. So there are lots of different types of clouds and precipitation, but it seems like the phenomenon of clouds forming in the atmosphere is really common.
0: You said it about Mars, that it rains carbon dioxide. Let's just make sure we're careful. It doesn't become liquid. It goes directly from gas to solid.
2: Exactly. Yeah, they say it, it precipitates out of the atmosphere like snow, more like. Right, so falls right, down yeah. it to the surface, right. That is fair, but still a type of precipitation.
1: Is it more like snow or is it like hail?
2: What is snow but very tiny hail?
1: How how solid are we talking? <laughs>
0: <laughs> snow and hail are different things. I'm going to correct you on that one. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so little in the atmosphere of Mars. I don't think it's these are significant storms. I think these mm. are transient precipitations here and there Mm
1: -hmm. yeah okay so like very delicate snow like a light snow yeah
0: Yeah. and not (laughs) and not falling through the atmosphere from so high up it's probably just kind of coming in the lower Mm. portions of the atmosphere Mm.
1: wow that's cool
0: it's certainly different (laughs) (laughs) i think the only atmosphere in the solar system that definitely does not have clouds is pluto Mm. but have we detected any clouds outside the solar system
1: Oh, absolutely. And this is probably expected because they're so omnipresent in the solar system. Um, And my astrobite references this, but clouds have been found on exoplanets of all different types. So this includes some of the best studied hot Jupiters. Those are the easiest planets to obtain atmospheric characterizations for. So um, HD 209458b and HD 189733b. Those lovely phone numbers are (laughs) actually some of the best studied hot Jupiters and clouds have been found or around both of those. Um, they've also been found, for example, in on this super-Earth, GJ 1214b, where there's this nature paper by Kreidberg et al. 2014, where they used spectra from 60 orbits of the Hubble Space Telescope to find this lovely featureless spectrum <laughs> that just basically showed that there were clouds there. Um, so they had this like really flat line that was basically blocking out Uh, any species that they might have seen in the atmosphere. So they were able to rule out cloud-free atmospheres dominated by all the major molecules that we're pretty used to seeing in Earth's atmosphere, like water and nitrogen and methane, to about five sigma. So it seems like these clouds are probably pretty common on extrasolar planets. It's pretty hard to say for rocky planets, because those tend to be quite difficult to study with spectroscopy. They're just very small. Uh, But GJ 1214b as a super earth might be considered a mini Neptune. Um, I'd have to check the mass. (laughs) And that one also seemed to have clouds.
2: Does that mean to discover clouds on exoplanets, you need to first have a pretty good model of the composition of the atmosphere. And then if you're not seeing those elements in the spectrum, then you infer the existence of clouds?
1: It's more that you attempt to observe the atmosphere, and if you see an absence of any of the features that you would expect, you just see a flat line, that tends to be indicative of clouds. That means that clouds are blocking out those features, and you're not able to actually see what might be a little bit more interesting if you care a lot about the composition of that planet's atmosphere, but it's still kind of interesting to see clouds.
0: So let's pause here and we'll pick back up this detailed cloud discussion when we get into the astrobite because I (laughs) want to hear all the gory details. But before we do that, just want to touch on one more topic, and that is about modeling. So get us started here. What is a model, really?
2: Well, Cambridge Dictionary defines a model as a person who wears clothes so they can be photographed or shown to potential buyers.
0: And that's pretty much every astronomer. I
2: think that's everything you need to know. (laughs) The models that we're talking about, I would probably define it as a simplified representation of a complex system that we construct in order to evaluate how well we understand the dominant processes going on in that system. So Mm -hmm. we're never going to get a complete understanding of every little subtle mechanism going on in whatever we're studying, depending on the physical system. but. Usually you can do pretty good to zeroth or first order just by considering a few large scale like forces, for example. Mm-hmm. And so we build a model on what we think is happening. And then that allows us to see where we went wrong and what other forces were missing.
1: Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add to that, because I think that was a really good definition, is that. It's really important that models make reproducible the underlying processes, so then they're used to test this idea and see if you're able to reproduce similar results in the future. And so all models are kind of by definition going to be wrong in some way. But some of them are actually useful, and it's important to find the ones that are useful and can't actually create these reproducible results.
2: Yeah, this is this famous George Box aphorism that always gets thrown around when talking about models. All models are wrong, but some are useful, exactly like you said, Mariana. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, because if a model were completely correct, it would just be the thing that you exactly. were trying to model right. it for anyway, right. and you would learn nothing from it. That's not a model of an atmosphere anymore. That's the atmosphere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if the model gets good enough, you've constructed a new planet's <laughs> <Right>. atmosphere. <laughs> All right. Now, we're going to take these ideas about clouds and about models and put them together with two really exciting astrobites. So, Melena, we'll start with you. Let's hear about it, modeling exoclouds.
1: Yeah. So, the astrobite that I'm going to be talking about is called Detecting Non-Uniform Clouds on Hot Jupiters in the Era of JWST by Ishan Mishra, and it's about Powell et al. 2019. And the main goal of this paper is understanding what types of uneven cloud coverages are detectable by the James Webb Space Telescope, so that's JWST, and how those inhomogeneities would manifest in our observations. So a lot of this paper is based on this idea of transmission spectroscopy, so I want to start there and just kind of define some of these terms. We can learn about the atmospheric properties of an exoplanet by studying how its apparent size changes as a function of wavelength due to the presence of molecular and atomic species in the atmosphere that absorb light at specific wavelengths. It looks like a spectrum ultimately, but what you're actually seeing is the radius of the planet looks slightly bigger and smaller at subtly different wavelengths. But if you have clouds in the atmosphere, then they can actually block out the signals that you would have otherwise seen from these atoms and molecules. So that prevents us from learning more about these atmospheres since we can't see past the clouds. They are just blocking our view.
0: It's the same problem as you were saying when you went observing last night and there were clouds, right? You can't Mm. see into space, right? It's the same idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's like at least we don't have clouds on the Earth then, but then we have clouds there and you... Don't know if they're going to be transient, but they might be. They might be inhomogeneous, as we'll hear more about.
2: I was about mm-hmm. to say, imagine if the same cloud that blocked out you were observing last night was observed by some alien race on another planet, and they were looking at the spectrum of the Earth saying, look, we have evidence for a cloud.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, anything's possible.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so tell us more about this paper Molina.
1: Yeah, so this paper is specifically focusing on what the atmospheres of hot Jupiters might look like and how that would manifest in observations taken by James Webb, where hot Jupiters are giant planets that are orbiting really close to their host stars. So they have really high temperatures, hence being called hot, and a lot of really unusual properties. So hot Jupiters have super crazy atmospheres. They include chemical compounds that are really unusual in the solar system, like aluminum and titanium oxides. Um, That are able to condense at these incredibly high temperatures that exist in hot Jupiter atmospheres, but that don't really exist in any of the atmospheres in the solar system. So hot Jupiters are thought to probably have really non-uniform clouds because of their very unusual properties. So they tend to be tidally locked, which means that just one side of the planet is facing the host star at all times, and the other side never faces the star. So you have this really strong differential temperature change between the day side and the night side of the planet. And that means that you're going to have very different cloud coverage potentially because of this very strong gradient in temperature okay yeah so different gases will condense to form clouds at different temperatures and so that means that you might have clouds of certain compositions at certain temperatures they might go away at other temperatures and it's going to not be the same across the entire planet if it's tidally locked because it's not spinning in the same way that the earth does where it's kind of more uniform at least across the globe
2: Mm -hmm. so i feel like in astronomy most of the things we model we just assume they're spherically symmetric so if you have an atmosphere that really depends on the angle that you're observing it at, then how do you begin to model those differences in 3D?
1: Yeah, so, so that's what this study is trying to do, because a lot of these atmospheric models are assuming 1D atmospheric spectra. So it's really not necessarily taking into account all of the 3D information. And that's necessary, actually, right now with the current instrumentation that we have, because we just don't have enough information from these spectra to be able to say, oh, we're getting this 3D set of information that we can actually pull out and distinguish the degeneracies from each other. Hmm. Uh, But in this paper, they're actually looking to see, will James Webb be able to do this if you, say, looked at a planet that had inhomogeneous clouds? Could you actually distinguish it from one that has non-inhomogeneous clouds? And they were looking to try to see what those differences are. So I don't think we're at the point of actually saying we have a map of the weather of this planet and can specifically say where all the clouds are, but we might be able to actually say, oh, this one clearly does not have uniform cloud coverage. It must be inhomogeneous or else we wouldn't see these particular spectral features.
0: Got it. So what are the spectral features that tell us that it's inhomogeneous cloud coverage?
1: The authors here simulated how those temperature differences would create these changes that you're asking about, and that's specifically what they were interested in. They found that the cloud structure is quite different on the east and the west limbs of the planet, so the side rotating away from the star and the side rotating towards it are going to have different temperatures. Um, And this leads to observable changes in what James Webb would see, where the west limb should be a lot cloudier than the east, And then the East limb has clouds at a lot higher altitudes, which make the apparent radius of the planet seem bigger. So when you sort of agglomerate all of this Mm -hmm. and then create a model spectrum of how it would look different, it creates these sort of distinctive features at very specific wavelengths in the spectra, where you actually can sort of tell by eye, looking at like the plots that they created, oh, these are very clearly different spectra. and. The authors found that these differences should actually be significant enough that James Webb should be able to tell if the planet has uniform cloud coverage or not. Um, So you would just look at particular wavelength regions and see, you know, do these lines still appear? Do they not appear? um, Does the continuum baseline appear a little bit different, which it would if you have these clouds versus if you don't. Um, And it's a really important step forward in simulating these planets as 3D rather than having the 1D atmospheric model. So it's really cool seeing what James Webb will be able to do.
0: Wow. Will James Webb have the resolution to separately see the limbs of the planet, or will they be combined into a single spectrum that then has to be disentangled?
1: Yeah, that's that's the issue. (laughs) James Webb is It's just looking at the star and all of this is just looking at the star because we're looking at, you know, star plus planet spectrum and then star without planet spectrum and comparing those. So all of this is like very noisy. You have to disentangle the signal from the star and you can't look really spatially at different parts of the planet. You're really just sort of (laughs) trying to even like getting the planet spectrum in the first place is quite challenging, but James Webb will be able to do that to this incredible precision, such that we can at least disentangle something, if not necessarily get like a full map of what the spectra looked like at different latitudes and longitudes.
2: So you mentioned that James Webb would probably be able to determine inhomogeneity in cloud coverage for a hot Jupiter like this, Would Mm -hmm. it also be able to discover like rapid changes to the cloud coverage, like not just clouds grouping to one Mm. side of the planet, but if they dissipate very quickly or form very quickly, is that something we'd be able to pick up?
1: It might be able to if that changes over time. So I would think that if you use multiple, if you use James Webb to observe multiple transits and you see significant variability in the spectrum, then that might be a sign that something like that is happening. Yeah, but I think it would just require multiple visits by James Webb to be able to see that. And I'm not sure just how much it would have to mm, change to right. actually be able to see something interesting. Right. Um, so it's certainly possible, but I'm not entirely clear like exactly what that limit is and sure. what we're able to disentangle. That's super cool. Yeah, so much exciting science. It's going to be launched so soon. Fingers crossed. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: all right well thanks for bringing us that bite and we will look forward to maybe reading some papers in the coming months about some actual results from james webb
1: yeah so soon
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right and now is for everybody's favorite segment of the week cloudy with a chance of noise (laughs) close your eyes and i'm going to bring you some lovely sounds all right any guesses on what that might be that was an
2: interesting one
1: yeah it sounded kind of underwatery, which is what I imagined space would sound like. <laughs> I also heard, like, sounds that seemed kind of, like, almost robotic. Yeah. So my guess would be maybe, like, something with the Mars rover, or one of the many Mars rovers.
2: <laughs> okay. I was thinking Mars rover, too, because it sounds atmospheric to me. Mm-hmm. It sounded like the atmosphere of something, but what do we have actual data from would be Mars, so... Yeah, my thought was that it was like a windstorm on Mars.
0: Yeah, you were closer with atmosphere of something. That was the, <laughs> the closest. This is a sonification of data taken by the Parker Solar Probe flying through the ionosphere of Venus. Wow.
1: Wow. I didn't even realize it did that. I didn't either.
0: (laughs) I know. It was not expected. They did not anticipate getting close enough to Venus to actually graze the ionosphere. So Mm. the ionosphere is the far upper atmosphere that's mostly charged particles. It's described in terms of its electron density. And the Parker Solar Pro was making passes of Venus to dump energy so it can get smaller orbit, get really, really close to the sun. And in this close pass to Venus, the ionosphere was actually really puffed up bigger than they expected. And it just grazed it, and the field instrument detected electric and magnetic fields in the ionosphere. This sonification and a really neat visual component that we'll link to as well were prepared by Mark Subarau, who is the lead of NASA's Scientific Visualization Studio. And I had the pleasure to meet with Mark back in April – and discuss some of the work that he does. It's a really neat position. And the Scientific Visualization Studio does a lot of great work on NASA outreach.
2: Very cool. So, Will, in the sonification, it sounded like there was kind of two components, like a low rumble and then a higher pitched set of tones, which Malena said sounded robotic. What were those? Mm -hmm. Were
0: those distinct phenomena? The low rumble is just the noise floor. So that is um, just what is detected in the absence of any real signal. And then the higher pitch stuff is the real signal. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you might be asking, why did Will pick Venus this week? And <laughs> there is a reason. In the past two weeks, NASA has selected two discovery missions to launch to Venus in the next decade. It's the Da Vinci, the Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging, and the Veritas Mission, the Venus Emissivity Radio Science in SAR Topography and spectroscopy mission. Wow, it's a mouthful.
1: <laughs> ESA also picked a Venus mission, right?
0: Correct. The European <laughs> Space Agency announced Envision, which is an orbiter. nice. A triad of missions going to Venus, one of which is going to actually have a probe. be the first time we sent something to the surface of Venus in I think, over 40 years. So mm-hmm. it is a very exciting time for the study of Venus in the next 10 to 20 years.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
2: you you know what's cool? When I heard about the announcement, I immediately thought of Reluka Rufu from one of our earliest episodes. She talked about the potential formation of our moon and how the greatest evidence for it might lie on the surface of Venus. So it's really cool that this mission was finally announced and we might actually get better data to get an understanding of how it formed.
1: Yeah, I can say it among the planetary community there's been like this huge push for venus recently where it's like everyone wants us to go to venus and so Hmm. so many people were really delighted with this announcement at least from what i saw from my twitter feed (laughs) so so, yeah i was super excited to see we're gonna learn so much about venus and i think it can teach us so much about not only the solar system but also how exoplanets work so it's super exciting sure
0: so, moving right along, next up we have Alex's bite all about the possibility of clouds on brown dwarfs.
2: Yep, that's right. I'm going to be talking about the Astrobite Brown Dwarf Weather Forecast: Cloudy or Clear Skies by Luna Zagorak. It's based on a paper by Eileen Gonzalez from 2020. So, just for a little bit of background, we should talk about SEDs. These are spectral energy distributions and In nearly all areas of astrophysics, they're one of the best ways to characterize an object. So, the SED is the energy emitted by the object as a function of its wavelength, and that can tell us about what types of emission contribute to the light that we observe, which is crucial for connecting our observations to the underlying physics within and around an object.
0: Just to briefly explain, an SED is very similar to a spectrum, The key difference is usually the units, sometimes things are scaled a little differently, and maybe the number of points. But for all intents and purposes, you can think of an SED as a spectrum. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Right. So this astrobite is about brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs are these objects
2: in the intermediate mass range between stars and planets. Typically, they have masses around 75 times the mass of Jupiter. And brown dwarfs are characterized by their temperatures and what elements we observe in their spectra. The details of each subclass aren't super important here, but based on Will's astrobyte for the last episode, I have a question for the both of you. If you have two brown dwarfs in a binary, would you expect them to belong to the same or different spectral classes, and why?
1: When you say spectral class, that's the class that's determined by the mass of the object, right?
2: Derived mass, which is based on temperature and the composition.
0: For brown dwarfs, that's L, T, and Y? Mm-hmm.
1: I would think the composition would probably be the same, but the masses of the objects don't have to be the same. So I'm not really sure that I would, like, I wouldn't assume that they're twin objects per se. They are they just have the same composition.
2: Why would you expect the composition to be the same?
1: Because they formed in the exact same location in a molecular cloud.
2: Ah, exactly. So this brings us to this object, SDSS J14162408. Plus 1348263AB.
1: <laughs> wow, and you thought HD209458 was a lot. <laughs> Jeez. I'll
2: be calling the system 1416AB from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, 1416AB is the only brown dwarf binary discovered to date where the two dwarfs, 1416A and 1416B respectively, have different spectral classes. Oh. This is unusual if you'd expect them to form in the exact same locations as Molina mentioned. So the authors in this paper constructed a set of atmospheric models and compared their resulting predictions for the SED to observations of each brown dwarf in the system to figure out exactly what the atmosphere might be like.
0: Okay, and I assume that these model atmospheres have clouds in them? <laughs> right. So
2: they used a code called Brewster, and the models had three different pieces. One, they had to assume some relationship between pressure and temperature in different levels of the atmosphere, different layers. Two, they assumed a chemical composition of the atmosphere. They actually recovered this composition from spectra of the binary. And three, they vary the opacity of each of the layers of the atmosphere. So this is like simulating cloud coverage. If you have high opacity, that's like having many clouds or very thick clouds. If you have a low opacity, you probably have very few clouds.
1: So they modeled the two objects separately. And did they have two separate set of spectra that they were trying to match? Or were they somehow like jointly modeling them?
2: Yeah, also a really great question. It turns out this is a really wide binary system. So it's actually possible to disentangle the observations from each individual brown dwarf which is oh, how cool. they're okay. able to model this system in detail
1: okay great
2: and then they used the monte carlo code mc they iteratively sampled their perimeter space and they found the atmospheric models that best fit our observations
1: of this system and the two objects were modeled completely separately and they were just seeing do the mcmc chains give you the exact same result for each of them is that right
0: exactly exactly okay and then they found
2: clouds Well, what they found is that for 1416A, their best model was a cloud model, where the opacity varied as a power law. And based on the properties of the best-fit clouds, we could be looking at clouds composed of iron, which is crazy to think about. Hmm. And for the best model for 1416B, they found a model with no clouds. So you should probably pick 1416B if you're looking for your next vacation destination. (laughs)
1: what would cause that though why would one of them have clouds and the other doesn't
2: yeah that's a great question and this kind of touches on the question that i alluded to at the very beginning of this astrobite which is if these two brown dwarfs formed in the same environments why are their spectral subclasses different Mm. it turns out this can be attributed (laughs) melena kind of gave away the answer at the very beginning but to differences (laughs) in initial mass so because the masses are different of these objects, they are at different positions along the brown dwarf evolutionary track.
0: Okay. Mm, right.
2: So some of the species we observe in 1416a will have sunk in to deeper levels of the atmosphere past the point where we can see them by the time we reach the temperature of 1416b. The other question you asked, Melena, which was why would we observe clouds on one and not the other, potentially attributed to different positions along the evolutionary track? but it's also not quite known what the atmospheric properties are of different subclasses of brown dwarfs. This was a system that we could observe because it was close, because it was a wide binary, and because we had lots of data, but future work is definitely to do this on the population statistics side, so to build up a large number of these atmospheric fits for different brown dwarfs, and to really see whether clouds are common to a particular subclass of brown dwarfs, and then that'll shed light on whether we really think these atmospheric properties have some underlying mechanism specific to the subclass.
1: I know brown dwarfs are kind of like in between stars and planets, but do they normally have clouds? How big does an object have to get to not have clouds anymore?
2: (laughs) All of these are questions that we do not have the answers to right now. Mm. Oh, sad. But also really exciting because with Mm. future data, like from James Webb, hopefully we can map these out in greater detail.
1: Also, I wanted to ask, because I think for exoplanets, it's actually pretty hard to tell whether it's a cloud or a haze. That's probably also true for brown dwarfs, right? Where we just say clouds because it's like the word that we're most familiar with. But I think that's actually not technically correct to just assume that it's a cloud.
2: Right. Yeah. I'm not sure of the details of the cloud model they assumed, I would guess. If you can't distinguish haze and clouds by opacity alone, then you're not going to be able to distinguish it from
0: their models. At a certain point, what is the difference between haze and clouds when it comes to absorbing light? They they both do that equally well. Right. But Alex, you said they modeled the clouds as a power law. So that's like as you get deeper, the opacity just gets higher, it keeps getting thicker and thicker.
2: The opacity changes. I'm not entirely sure in which direction it changes.
0: Okay. What we see on Earth is the cloud base, the lower limit of the clouds is like kind of a wall. Hmm. You know, you notice this when you're in an airplane and you actually go up into a cloud. It doesn't start gradually. You just pop into the cloud and then you sort of pop out the top and you exit up into the next layer of the atmosphere. So clouds are sort of in a narrow band. Rarely are they so tall or so gradual.
2: Right. Yeah. And actually they divided up their modeled atmospheres into 65 distinct layers oh okay so even if they have uh, the cloud opacity evolving as a power law in one of the distinct layers it's still relatively localized in the sense that you're talking about
0: okay makes sense it sounds like a robust model Mm -hmm.
1: that's a super cool astrobite. thank you alex
0: yeah i learned a lot about brown (laughs) dwarves that i had never learned about before so let's move along to our one sentence summaries
1: Hot Jupiters should have non-uniform cloud coverage due to their tidally locked orbits and large temperature gradients, and that non-uniformity just might be observable with the James Webb Space Telescope.
2: Straight into the point.
1: How about you, Alex?
2: If you've been waiting on a three-day forecast to book your next brown dwarf vacation, wait no longer. 1416b is the place to be.
1: It's a lot less literal than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I like to go poetic. <laughs>
2: Don't actually go. It's actually incredibly hot. But uh.
0: <laughs> All right. A couple of questions I have. Whenever models are discussed, I think it's worth adding that there are some limitations to the power of modeling. And there can be drawbacks from using even a good model. So at what point do the benefits outweigh The dangers of modeling and at what point are you in the danger zone and need to stop
1: I think this is a good question for especially like looking at exoplanet models for atmospheres because there are so many possible degeneracies and you can come up with these incredibly detailed models we have these like wonderful global circulation models that show like so much detail about what happens in earth's atmosphere and those have been adapted to exoplanets And you can certainly learn a lot about what in theory could be happening in exoplanets, but we also just don't have that much information about these exoplanets just yet. And so I think either way, it's useful to understand theoretically what could happen. But there's sort of a question of, you know, at what point are observations going to actually catch up with that? And there are lots of space missions that will be launched in the immediate future. And by that, I mean, within the next decade, (laughs) that will (laughs) really advance our knowledge of exoplanet atmospheres. but to be able to actually map out like an entire 3D global map to the same extent that you can actually justify like all of the detail of the Earth type models. I'm not hundred percent sure. I still like again think that it's useful as a thought experiment, but yeah.
2: Yeah, I think the value in models lies in us continually reminding ourselves that the model is limited. That we, mm-hmm. cons- we ourselves constructed the model. Because I think when the models get so good, it can be really easy to be lulled into a false sense of confidence. And everything we see in the model convince ourselves that it's some reflection of reality. This is why I like the George Box quote is all models are wrong. It's it's very provocative, but I think helps to humble us so that if we see something in our model, we can dig for the answer both within a limitation of the model and within actual underlying Phenomena that we haven't yet observed, because I think both are
0: really important. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. They're still useful as long as you are pretty sure that you're capturing all the major components. The problem is sometimes we're looking at objects that have never really been studied in great detail before. In fact, that's kind of the point of a lot of research. Right. And so it's it can be tough to know whether you are capturing all of the major components for something that you've just never seen before. And I think that's an important question to think about.
0: Or on the flip side, you could capture components that we can never observe, and so your model has detail that is sort of a waste of time, or waste of computing power potentially. Mm -hmm. If you can distinguish observationally between different models, it might be great, but if you can't, and there's no realistic way for us to for a long time, it, it does raise some red flags. But my experience with modeling, when I did a summer internship a few years ago at NASA Ames and worked with someone who does protoplanetary disk modeling and she has you know a really intense model and runs on supercomputers and i was given access to it and said you know explore it right play with some of the parameters see what happens and i just i just went crazy and started putting in (laughs) things and finding results i'm like okay i can make a whole planetary system if this equals that value and this equals that value and i brought it to her and she's like will this is complete nonsense these values (laughs) do not happen you cannot get these in space And so I had to rethink it. I had to actually go to the literature and say, okay, what actually can be done? Mm -hmm. Because the model will do anything you want it to. But that doesn't mean it's actually realistic.
1: It's important to have some reality to anchor your models to, I think. Although I do push back against the idea of models that are not necessarily testable being not useful. I think they actually can be useful because that's sort of saying like all string theory is completely useless. And I still think it's quite an interesting thought experiment. So even if it's not testable, I think it's interesting to consider the possibilities.
0: This is a caution to our listeners that we're getting close to philosophy. We always do. And we can go over the edge. I'm ready
2: to, just warning everybody. I also think that pushing the limits of your model past what has been observed or what is reasonable given observed data sets is still a valuable exercise as well, because simulating things that we have never observed before in some sense better prepares us for observing Mm -hmm. things that we've never observed before.
1: Yeah. And along that line, we don't necessarily know what we're going to be able to prove in the future or probe more thoroughly right so i would definitely not say with 100 percent confidence that we can't ever test string theory i don't know maybe we That's can <laughs> so there are tons of things i'm sure that we are able to do now that 100 years ago people would have thought you were completely insane <laughs> if you <laughs> thought that was testable so i don't know there there are so many possibilities try not to rule anything out before it's I don't know, mathematically proven that you can't. And even then, even then. (laughs) (laughs) Machine learning has made great bounds in, like, pushing past the Lyapunov timescales for, like, modeling chaos, for example, which, like, Mm -hmm. was thought to be impossible. And so it's really interesting. There's so much that you can do that might even seem impossible, like, when you work out the math and then after you explore it further, it's actually not impossible. That's amazing. Universe is cool.
0: (laughs) Astronomers love to push the boundary of what's possible. right? We want to extract the data from the noise even when it seems impossible to do. And often we've developed methods to do it quite well. So the question I ask is, are we looking for clouds on exoplanets and brown dwarfs because it's scientifically impactful or because it is the cutting edge of what is possible and we want to extract all the data we can?
2: I don't know that I understand the distinction between those two examples you gave, I mean, we determine what is scientifically meaningful or impactful, right? And a lot of times that's, we determine it to be impactful because it pushes the envelope of what we're able to do right now and what we
0: understand. So I'll give you an example, a concrete example of the distinction. Sure. The title holder of the fastest computer in the world is something that flips back and forth between different countries and different labs. And these are really computers in the loosest possible sense. They are indeed connected nodes that can do you know, X number of petaflops, which is floating point operations, but does it really matter? No, it doesn't really matter which is faster because they're all so fast that it's they can do anything we need them to do. So at that point, is building the faster and faster one a useful exercise or not? I would argue it's not really a useful exercise. Money and time are better spent elsewhere, but many people say, no, we need to keep going and see what we can do. So that's what I see as the distinction here. It's not scientifically meaningful just because we can do it.
1: I think I really enjoy the idea of knowledge for the sake of knowledge and not necessarily for the sake of practicality. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be an astronomer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's just so powerful that we're able to just go into great detail in understanding a topic like, such great detail that we're completely pushing the bounds of what has ever been done before. And you never really know what's going to come out of that. And oftentimes, you can't really say what the practical applications of something will be until after you've already done it. But even beyond that, like, even practicalities aside, it's an incredible way of showing what humanity can do and, like, how people can use knowledge not just as a vocation, but for, like, personal self-actualization of just gaining the satisfaction of like, now we understand these things that we didn't understand. And I feel like curiosity is such an intrinsic human quality.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And you said that probably much more eloquently than I would be able to. I think on the application side, we've been talking about the kind of leapfrogging utility of observations and theory or models. And I think that for those to be useful and to kind of continue to pull each other along, one of them has to be in the lead at any given time right so you could have a model that you develop that's in advance of the observations that we have and somebody could easily throw stones at that and say well why are you making a model for something we've never observed but then it pushes the observations to catch up and to match and compare against the model that we have and then it pushes past and say well now let's come up with a model for the things that we've observed so i think there is immediate utility in this back and forth and it kind of pushes everything else to rise to the occasion to match that one thing. So that's kind of the immediate utility. But then again, just echoing exactly what Melena said, that I think as a species it's really beautiful, just the fact that we can create and explore, and that's kind of what culture is all about, right? Is like being able to push the envelope and create new things, whether it's art or science, learning about something new. But just to do things that people haven't done before or to do those same things in new ways, I think that's Mm -hmm. what's important.
1: Also, I guess for a more concrete answer, if you actually really do care about the applications very (laughs) much, all of this is pushing towards being able to model small exoplanet atmospheres more accurately. Well, specifically, all of the topics that we've talked about in this particular episode And a big, big question that is perhaps a practical question that a lot of astronomers are working towards is, is there life on other planets? So I think that's really the ultimate goal. And all of this detailed modeling of brown dwarfs and hot Jupiters is just because those are the only things big enough for us to actually answer that question for, where we're able to start practicing and get these detailed models until we can push towards the smaller and smaller planets and say, does it look like there are real biosignatures here?
2: And to your very first point, Will, about whether it's a valuable utility to try and push toward faster processors and larger computers and how many teraflops compared to another, I think that if we develop the computational power to do something, then we'll look for applications. We'll find things to do with it, and that's how we continue to advance the field.
0: Well, there are are two ways of advancing computing. There's getting more power, and there's innovating a new approach to getting power. So I think instead of making a computer 10% bigger than the previous record holder you're better off spending time investigating quantum computing which would get you a million times better than the previous record holder in a million smaller space. You see and that's sort of my point with that example which is that's why I think it's it's money and time poorly spent. I don't know that that tracks over to astronomy and I think your answer Milena is is quite convincing to everyone except taxpayers and funding agencies who will say no um that's great go read a book you know we're not going to spend our money you know and and i i may personally disagree and you may personally disagree but at some point we do have to answer to those authorities
1: yeah i mean i gave a very phd answer i think right. <laughs> yeah
0: it's tough because you have to balance both of these against each other we don't get to be solidly in one camp mm-hmm. I'm reading a book right now called Lab Girl,
2: and in the earliest chapters, the author is talking about how she received a grant from the government to study looking for chemical signatures of like bio-warfare and handmade bombs from terrorist groups, and using that funding on the side to do all of her research into how plants grow and change. So Hmm. I think it's just an interesting... I mean, those two are very different fields of research, but it is true that... The academic structure is an economic one, right? We have to get money somehow. And sometimes that means creating a proposal for something that has immediate value and then exploring this kind of more theoretical, more far-reaching research in off hours and with the money that you have left
0: over. Absolutely. If there are any funding agencies or elected officials listening to this podcast, fund science. (laughs) It'll pay dividends for society. (laughs) So with that, we will conclude episode 38, Keep Your Head in the Clouds. If you care to read the two astrobytes we talked about today or peruse the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes as usual. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can listen to our many episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. As the nation excitedly reopens, next time you see a friend, tell that person to give us a listen. Then you'll have something to talk about other than who got surprisingly ripped during quarantine. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.